With support from the Climate Cake Alumni Association, welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Kaners. People live today where they will. Neither terrain nor distance a deterrent to where the men of the city build their homes. All roads lead, as they have for centuries, to the great centers of commerce and communication, as the Continental Highway now leads us to the city of tomorrow. Plazas of urban living rise over... Freeway. Ah, the city of the future. A car in every driveway, a backyard for every home and 10-lane highways that would funnel the modern worker to their office downtown, and after the workday was done, back to their own little spot of paradise in the suburbs. And you know, regardless of how you feel personally about the merits or non-merits of such a suburban-style city, it's definitely not how you would design one if sustainability was your goal. Maybe not surprising since these cities were created and built with the assumption that fossil fuels were an almost limitless resource, one that we could rely on indefinitely. And when you compare the carbon footprint of a good European city with a North American city, it's easy to see just how much of an impact design considerations can have. A bike-friendly city like Copenhagen, for example, that has design elements like efficient district heating, emits less than three tons of carbon dioxide per citizen a year. With a North American city, that amount can be as high as 15 tons. So changing how our cities are run and designed can have a huge impact on the carbon footprint we have as individuals. And luckily, cities around the world are starting to make their planning decisions with exactly this in mind. Or, as my guest Mark Watts puts it, cities are the first to experience the effects of climate change and the first to do something about it. And Mark Watts is well-placed to know, because he's the executive director of something called the C40. It's a network of cities around the world that are collectively taking steps to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The seed for the C40 initiative started in October 2005, when then-Mayor of London, Ken Livingston, gathered together representatives from 18 megacities. The vision was to see if there was ways that they could cooperate on their efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and learn from one another. Since then, the group has steadily grown, and the C40 now represents some 80 cities, including many of the world's largest, from New York and Rio de Janeiro to Johannesburg. Before coming to the C40, Mark Watts was the Climate Change and Sustainability Advisor to Mayor Livingston of London, I sat down with Mark Watts while we were both in Paris. Here's our conversation. Well, Mark Watts, welcome to The Elephant. Lovely to be here. So you had something called the, the C40, which uh, deals with how cities can become more sustainable, especially when it comes to climate change. And to start off, I just want to get a sense, like when we talk about a city's carbon emissions, what, what are we really talking about? What sort of things are we talking about? Well, the, the, the biggest components generically is the energy consumed in buildings so people's homes and and their offices in the city transport is the kind of tends to be the next big chunk and then uh, uh, how cities deal with their waste in particularly in the global south can often be a pretty big component of the overall carbon emissions i guess what's different if you're looking at the the scale that the city government which is what i what i work with can affect it's those things rather than generally the actual generation of energy, which tends to be done outside of the city and tends to be the, the responsibility of a national government. I mean, central to trying to make a city more sustainable would be, of course, measuring uh, what a city's emissions are. I imagine that to be quite a challenge. How how does a city go about doing that? It's not. We've, we are trying to make it not complicated so that it's very simple for everybody to do. In the city's case, it's about measuring 
the kind of trips that people are making to and from work, to and from home, the quality of the vehicles that they're using to do them. Like if they're on bikes or on transit. or walking, you know what fuel is being used to put electricity into homes and buildings, so you just need to know the quantity that's used largely. I mean, it's, it's actually not that complicated if you, if you break it down. So when we look at that data, do we have a sense like what, what cities are leading in per capita emissions compared to what types of cities have the most emissions? Well, that de- so this depends how you, how you sort of take that question. So unequivocally, if you just look at the per capita emissions as it is, there's no question who's the, who's the worst in the world. I'm afraid it's the United States of America and it's Australia. Those cities, big cities there will tend to be per capita emissions, 15, 20 uh, tons per person. The, at the opposite end of the scale, some of our member cities, Addis Ababa, 0.1. But the, the best of the richer sort of countries, the Europeans, will tend to be around the five or six tonnes per person. And what we're aiming for, we're, aim, we're aiming for every city to be below two if we're going to hit the climate targets. So there's a huge way to go for some, for some cities. So even cities that are at the same level of development, they're like uh, cities that are well-constructed or well-run in this sense can have a third of the emissions as a, on average as a bad American city or Australian city? Well, I, I think the, the thing that really determines it when you, when you break it down is it's whether the city is compact, dense, and mobility is based on, on public transport, cycling and walking, or whether it is suburban, sprawling, and mobility is largely based on car. Not because it's all about transport, for the reasons I've just said, but the, 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 kind of, the two things go together. If you've, if you've got a mobility based on mass transit and cycling and walking, you can have the kind of buildings that are very energy efficient, multi-use, mixed-use development, and you use less concrete, you use less steel. If you go down that North American-type pathway then everything, more of everything is consumed. The population tends to be a little less healthy as well, as it happens, not getting so, so much exercise. And all, you know, the, the sum total is a much bigger carbon footprint. So a lot of it is just based on, I guess, that North American uh, mode of development post-war? Yeah, it's one of those interesting things because it was probably a very rational thing at the time. But, you know, you go back and look at those exhibitions about the future city in the 1950s. And it was the dream of the car-based city um, where everybody was going to have a, a detached house with a garden and a massive drive and garage for their for their car. And people really aspired to it. It, it would be very hard now to find... Uh, a mayor of a big city who thought that that was a rational way to run their city. And indeed, the demand for, for that amongst the population is is reducing. I think there's a pretty much of a consensus about the direction we need to go. However, it's quite tough to get there. Why? Well, because you're trying to turn around a pattern of, of assumptions about what a good quality of life is like in a city of 50 years. And so whilst in C40, which is very much the leadership, it's the biggest cities, the Paris, the New York, the Londons, there's very much an, an acceptance that that's the way forward. And they're in our group of cities, in our last survey, 30 out of the 60 that were surveyed have reduced their carbon footprint in absolute terms since the Copenhagen climate talks in 2009. If you look at the world as a whole in the whole period, in that period, emissions have risen something like 20 or 30 percent. So there's a big difference between the leaders and the rest of the world. Um, but I think I think now we know the critical thing that now we really know that the most successful cities, the cities that will improve standards of living fastest, where economic growth will be 
biggest and most sustainable are the ones that are adopting a low carbon pathway. We now know it's not a choice between development and tackling climate change. The two things actually go together. That I think is a game changer and therefore we'll see a huge shift in the next few years. So when you talk about some of these these 30 cities that have managed to reduce their emissions in absolute terms. So what sort of things have they done? Can, are there any favorite examples you have of, of how a city, even if they're set up like an American city, have been able to reduce their emissions? Yeah, I mean, it's a co- combination of things. So I'd say the things that you generically see, they're pretty much all now um, have invested very heavily in mass transit. So actually not so much the metros of the the, the last century, but the bus is making a big return, huge growth in the use of the bus. And, and particularly, actually, it's come from the Global South. Bus rapid transit started in, in Brazil and is now sweeping the board of the big cities in the world. There's actually more bus rapid transit in rich Western cities than there is in the Global South now because it's cheap and quick and, and people can get into work very easily. Similarly, uh, cycling is the return of the bike might have been seen as a historic outdated mode of transport, but a massive resurgence in the cities that are most successful like Copenhagen. Over 40% of trips are made by bicycle. It's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary change. You mentioned uh, mass rapid uh, bus transit. What exactly is that? How does that work? How is that different than regular buses that we all take? Well, the, the the theory behind it, and it came from originally from a mayor in Curitiba in Brazil who was an architect, and he observed that people were happy to shift from their car to using a metro because they felt like it was a kind of high-quality form of transport. You know, they went into this special station, they went onto relatively nice platforms, they got onto the train at a, a level, they didn't have to step up, and the tr- and the ride was quite smooth. Whereas buses were kind of rattling and polluted and you had to stand out in the sun or the rain and then climb up to get on, on them and everything. So what he designed, what he did was he, he designed routes that, first of all, separated the buses from the rest of the traffic so that their journey times were completely reliable, like on a metro. It was always going to take the same time and you could guarantee you get into work if you left at the same, on the same bus at the same time every day. Uh, they put a lot of effort into the design of the boarding platforms, so it looked a bit like a metro, protected from the sun and the rain, uh, flat for boarding, uh, and then very simple with simple form of, uh, of tickets, and then the clues in the, in the name, rapid, so express routes from the edges of the city into the centre without lots and lots of stops. So it works like a subway where instead of stopping every 100 metres, it would stop every kilometre or something. Exactly. The controversial thing, of course, with it at the time is you're taking space away from cars in order to do that and segregate physically segregating it so that the buses um, can can work. One of the I think the genius in of Jaime Lerner who did it in Brazil was he promoted the campaign not through standardised marketing to the adults who were most likely to use it, but to children in schools and got children coming home saying, "Mummy, Daddy, I want I want to go on the bus. I want to go on the bus," and then kind of. Built, built it up that way. So using McDonald's strategy for good, I guess. Yeah, well, well I like it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, but it, but now it, I think you know the critical part of it really is that is the prioritisation of the bus. And, and in the in the cities where you've really seen a big shift, L- London was one of the first of the big cities that there's an, in a period of big economic and population growth, fewer cars being used every day, and many, many, many more public transit rides. It's because they made them reliable by segregating the traffic or giving them priority at the lights so that when you get in the bus, you know how long it's going to take you to get to your destination. I guess it has a, the double-edged effect that it makes the bus faster and then makes driving your car slower. 
Yeah, and you need and you do need a bit of that. I think that pricing mechanisms another thing. London's done it. Stockholm and Milan in 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 a certain way. Uh, Singapore, but some form of congestion pricing. So you make the drivers who are congesting the city and polluting it pay a premium if they want to carry on tra- travelling in that way. And you use all of that money to make the cost of public transit cheaper and to give prioritisation. And that's very effective. I. I can't imagine there'll be many major cities in the world that will be able to afford not to have road pricing within the next decade. How many cities in the world have it now? It's only it's only those four of the big cities. I may not know of some of the smaller examples. And it's it's one of those things, given that it's been so successful in all of those cases, massive reductions in air pollution and in congestion, very strong revenue stream that's helped the city invest in other transit pro- projects. It's surprising that it hasn't happened, but we've seen as in, in New York and in, in Manchester in the UK that it's politically very difficult to do. And I think the lesson from the places that done it, it is actually one where you need national and, and city to work together. Where there has been legislation that has allowed the mayor, given the mayor the full responsibility to introduce the charge, it's been possible to do it. And where the mayor has been brave enough to say, I'm going to do this, we're not going to consult the population about it because we know the majority of people will be against it at the point that we introduce it. But I'm confident that if that when it works, the majority will be in favour. And that's exactly what we saw in London, exactly what we saw in Stockholm as well. You were involved in the London case, right? Or you worked for uh, Ken Livingstone, right? Yep, I spent a good three years of my life from 2000 to 2003 working on... on uh, as I was a political advisor to the mayor, but one of my responsibilities was the, was the congestion charge. And it, it was a very interesting case because it, it's been the single most important policy, I would say, in London in the last 20 years, uh, at a point at which London actually it seems odd now, but London was being seen as going downhill, losing competitiveness, even as a financial centre, uh, not only against New York, but against... Uh, Frankfurt and Paris, real threat that the major financial firms would move there. And a big part of that was because the city was just so clogged up and, con- and congested. And I've, n- I've never seen it since, but it, in the t- election for mayor in 2000, the number one issue was, was traffic congestion. Not health, education or jobs, but traffic congestion. Uh, and Mayor Ken Livingston was incredibly brave, used that to put in put in something radical even though every opinion poll told him it was it would be a disaster for his career and he got it right and it worked and the proportion of people that supported it went in two weeks of it coming in from a majority against to 65 percent in favor so what did you tell him at that time when the polls were showing that uh if you implemented this most people would be upset well it's that it's it's an interesting one in his incredible leadership i mean i was very very much in favor of it uh, in bringing it in, there came a, there was a critical point at which the polls were so so awful. Like what? How bad? It was about sixty, sort of sixty forty, but but a big part of his own constituency uh, who feared, even though actually they weren't going to be affected because they were the relatively less well off, um, who could never afford to drive into central London anyway because they couldn't afford the parking charges. But they the the negative media had convinced them that they might be effective, and. We did have a conversation. His closest team was, you know, is this really worth it? All of the all of the other great things that we do might get lost because of this one policy. And and Ken was just very resolute and said, no, this is the thing that's going to change this city, and I'm going to do it, and it's going to work, and people are going to like it. Could you just clarify? So this is this is a charge that if you go into a, a certain portion of London or Greater London, then then you get a daily charger or something. If- 
Yeah, sorry. It's it's so it's uh, it's now ten pounds a day. It was five pounds a day at the charge. It's it's the cent- centre of London, the bit that most people know from the postcards: Buckingham Palace, Big Ben, Tower of London, uh, Oxford Street, where all the, the the sort of central activity is. And yes, you get charged uh, during working hours, essentially, sort of seven a.m. to to six p.m. on a Monday to Friday. It's a a fixed charge if your vehicle goes into the the zone at that time. And uh, just by a camera or something? Uh, yeah, and it's a number plate recognition scheme. Um, you know, this, this this is a 12-year-old scheme now. Actually, no one's found found anything better. Uh, it, and, it, it, and it works to a sort of 95% sort of detection rate. So actually, your odds of getting away with it are very, very, very small. Uh, and Britain's an honest country anyway, so everyone pays. And so I guess if it's Monday to Friday during business hours, it's kind of specifically targeted at making commuting by car more expensive. Yeah, it's it's it was targeted in a city that's got tremendous public transit, enticing people out of their cars and onto public transport. And so does all that money go back into uh, transportation or into, is that money set aside for a specific use? 100%. And the, when the mayor sort of put in place the regulations that introduced the scheme, he made it um, a legal requirement that 100% of all the revenues go back into transport. So maybe we should talk about what the C40 actually does itself. So this came out of Ken Livingston too, right? It is, yeah. Well, it's a C40 in its essence, we're an organization that helps uh, peer-to-peer exchange of, of great ideas and indeed the knowledge of, of bad ideas. Uh, so it, it emerged when, when Ken Livingston was mayor of London because we were creating a, a climate plan for the first time in London and realized we really didn't have the expertise to focus on this then new issue. Uh, and so we looked out and talked to Stockholm and San Francisco and Copenhagen and Toronto at that time. I had a, had a great mayor, David Miller, uh, learned from them and thought, this is so valuable. Why don't we try and do this permanently? Let's create a network. And it's since that it's sent, it's gone through sort of many phases. Uh, David Miller, the former mayor of Toronto, was the first to kind of really take it into the the kind of diplomatic circles, a big, big event of mayors at Copenhagen uh, in, in, at, that, at that COP, which was very uplifting against the backdrop of a, a failed climate talks. But really the significant push then was when, when Mike Bloomberg was uh, mayor of New York and took over the, the chair of C40. And he's, he made it into a data-driven organisation with participation standards that you had to pass to be in, in this club, put a lot of his own money into it. It's a professional organisation so that we're now able to provide direct support to those member cities to really help them be as ambitious as possible. Can you give me an example of the the sort of learning from each other that the cities have done with some of the policies? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see it in the numbers. Um, we were talking about bus rapid transit. It, when we first started measuring what cities were doing in 2011, 22 of our cities had bus rapid transit. Four years later, 42 have got it. Uh, and it, they're mostly directly copying the schemes that were in place in other cities with exchange of staff to do it. LED lighting, it's its a six-fold increase. You know, almost all of our cities have LED street lighting when almost none of them had it only 10 years ago. Cycle hire, which I, I talked a little bit about earlier, complete sort of exponential growth. In, in 2011, six cities had cycle hire. Two years later, 36 had it. Now it's 55 from memory. Um, and that's like the bike sharing we see around Paris, for example? Yeah, the Velib in Paris was what really ignited it. Uh, is Paris the first city? No, interesting. It's the first, it's the one that everybody thinks was the first city. Uh, I think Barcelona could genuinely claim credit. The one that did it in the way that Paris did it first was Lyon. Uh, but then what you know, it's 
it's interesting. That's why we C40 is about mega cities, the biggest cities in the world. When something happens in Paris, everybody sees it. So Paris set the example and then it went to other big cities like like New York and. Yeah, I can tell you from my experience. I, I sitting in a, in a conference where um, the mayor of Paris uh, announced and showed the Velib, and and my mayor just sort of jabbed me in the ribs and said, "Why didn't you think of that?" I imagine there were about another fifty conversations happening with different mayors and their advisors at the same time. Now, I, I saw you write somewhere that cities are where the battle to stop or prevent climate change will be won or lost. Why is that the case? Well, the simple reason is half of humanity lives in cities and three quarters of carbon emissions are generated in cities. But I, I mean, that's the negative. The positive is that I think city leaders have found a method of global collaboration on climate change, which has so far eluded national leaders. And it's not that there isn't competition between cities, which is clearly what's bedeviling the intergovernmental talks. It's the difference in how they, those respective spheres of government deal with that competition. So for the nation states, the way that they're set up to defend their geographic boundaries and their commercial interests, conflict ends in war or protective trade barriers. So that's a race to the bottom. When cities compete with, with each other, it's a race to the top. You invest more in your city, you improve the infrastructure to attract business, you improve the cultural offering to attract the best people, the most exciting, dynamic people. And so, and you, you steal shamelessly from each other because if it's a good idea in one city, there's no copyright on when, when Paris did Vellib or when London did congestion pricing. You just copy it and do it in your city and try and do it a little bit better. And so that we see a really great dynamic of who cares whether it's sharing or copying, but it's, it's, it's constantly learning from each other. Do you see a way around that for the international level? I mean, because that seems like a structural problem built in where you know, countries almost are automatically seeing their interests as divergent. I think the model of national government, which in the West at least emanates from that kind of enlightenment period at the end of the 18th century, is not suitable for the 20th century world. It cannot solve global problems. So climate change is just one of them, but it's not It's not conducive to and what we now have, which is a globalised world, which, which requires lots of international collaboration. City government, it turns out, is very well suited to it. That's not to say we need to eradicate the nation state and, and only have city states. That would be a recipe for disaster in many other ways. And you, you do need that, that kind of national level collaboration. But I think it's far more likely that city leaders working together will create the dynamism for tackling climate change than it is that national leaders working together will do so. Well, we've even seen quite a bit of uh, difficulties at the national level, like just in America or, you know, in Britain right now, with green policies. Do you think there's something about the national level too that poses problems in, in confronting climate change? Well, it, it shouldn't need to because there are good and bad examples. I mean, in many ways, it's easier for, for mayors because the things that will make a happy, successful city in the 21st century are rather well correlated with what's needed to do to reduce carbon emissions, you know, the things that we, we, we've talked about uh, earlier. It's a bit different at the kind of nation state level where where you've got more competing interests and the conflict between the needs of the rural community and the needs of the urban community, which which can make it uh, harder. But I, I still I note there are the governments that have been most focused on a low carbon future, Germany. Denmark, Sweden, Norway in a strange way, given that it, it's so kind of oil-based in its, in its economy, are being rather successful. They're building industries that are going to be competitive long into the future, uh, whereas you've got to worry about nation states that still feel that the, the old fossil fuel industries are going to be the backbone of their economy. 
I think the only way forward is low carbon. It's not really a choice. Yeah, it seems kind of amazing that some places are rolling back initiatives. Like I just read an article about Denmark cutting its uh, uh, some of its renewable policies. And, and of course, the UK has recently been rolling it back when clearly that's where the jobs are going to be if, if we do anything at all to solve the problem. Well, I, you know, I've, I think that's an expression of the kind of last splurge of power of the dominant industries of the 20th century. And the the fossil fuel industry has played an absolutely pernicious role in the future of humanity in the, in the last two or three decades uh, in undermining, holding back uh, action on climate change at, at every stage. And the irony is here that these the big uh, energy companies that have made all of their money out of fossil fuels could quite easily be the people who dominate the renewable energy industry if they so chose. And instead, they are they're choosing to, to stick in the past. But I, I and I'm an optimist here because I think the economic case with every day, the work that Nick Stern, New Climate Economy Commission has done, with every day becomes more and more and more obvious. And we're doing this interview at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. There are 200 business leaders down there, led by Paul Pullman at Unilever, who completely get this issue and, and absolutely know that the right thing for business is to move on to a low-carbon development path. And I think we're starting to get to a critical mass that will overcome the negative part of the of the the small but incredibly well funded part of the business community that's been opposing action and once i guess we make it so it's unprofitable to do their business model then the battle's been won yes and and, and that's why right you know rightly there's a call um from that perspective for carbon pricing but uh, uh i also fear that that's a bit of a cop-out you know we'd we, we'd love to do something yeah, bp shall we'd love to do something if only the the politicians would put in place a carbon price you know, we're we're all human beings. We're we're we all have families. We all have a responsibility uh, to to look after the world. And and hiding behind immediate um, profit motive, I don't I don't think is an excuse that anyone can use. You know, we were talking about kind of the structural problems with uh, how American cities were built being kind of the problem with their high emissions. And you know, I I'm from Toronto originally, and when you drive out uh, to the suburbs in the city, they just go on and on and on, and there's no way. They could ever be sustainable, you know. There, there's entire gigantic suburbs like Mississauga that has like 500,000 people in it or more, where you know there's there's sidewalks, but there's never anyone on them because you to go anywhere you would need a car. And with cities like Phoenix too, where the entire thing has been set up around this suburb model. And when I think about these cases, it gives me a bit of despair because it suddenly it makes me realize, well, we can't turn on a dime like to remake something that for decades was locked in is a huge challenge. So given that we really need to get to 80% or 100% cuts in, in emissions by 2050, how can we overcome that challenge? How can we transform cities that have been fundamentally uh, set up in a, in a way that is incompatible with zero emissions? It's going to be tough for those cities and will take some time, but but clearly the sooner you start, the better. I, I It's going to need really robust spatial planning legislation that just requires all new development to be increasing density, to be connected to mass transit, making it possible to cycle and walk for work, setting the very highest building standards. We were just hearing uh, that in, in Amsterdam, they're now setting a, that every new building has to be carbon, have achieve carbon neutrality. So I think it's, it's going to need need some of that. It will mean that in that, particularly in those North American cities, there'll be a much greater focus on moving quickly to, to renewable energy. 
because recognising it's going to take some time to change that the actual spatial model and therefore electric vehicle electrification uh, and the uh, energy sources within homes is going to is going to be important. But also just realising some of the the efficiency savings at the moment. You know the very very simple things that we all know. The shift to to LED lighting in in Europe, which has come about, I'm afraid, from government regulation in the end, which then the market has responded to very very quickly has shaved 20 or 30 percent off energy consumption from lighting in almost overnight uh, and we'll need to see a lot more of that in, in the u.s as well i mean i also saw you write somewhere that you know climate change is a market failure so given that what can cities do to kind of overcome that that built-in market flaw well i, I think you know here's the opportunity for benign regulation you know re- good government because whilst it, it's true that it's absolutely true that that climate change is the the single biggest market failure ever, as, as, as Nick Stern says, that doesn't mean that a huge part of the solution isn't going to come from the best that the market has to offer and, and the entrepreneurship and the, and the great innovation that will come out of the private sector. But the role of the public sector is to make it easy for those the people who want to move in that direction in the private sector. And it needs, some, it needs brave regulation. It just You should not be allowed to build in the greatest cities of the world. You shouldn't be allowed to build new buildings unless they're, they're designed to be carbon neutral in the very near future. And we know that it's possible to do that because it's been done in, at a small scale in most cities, but it's turning that into, into the mass scale. We can see from what Copenhagen's been operating for 20 or 30 years that if you have a... a what might seem a rigid planning policy that only allows major new development near mass transit hubs, your city will end up being designed around mass transit and it will have a density that goes along those mass transit lines and it will become one of the most livable cities in the world with some of the lowest emissions in the world. So it it needs some brave, tough government around which the market can then coalesce. Would you say that's one of the biggest obstacles is um, like what you were mentioning before with uh, the temporary unpopularity of the measures I don't I mean I don't really think public opinion is necessarily a, a barrier to cl- action on climate change it's really a matter of both business and and the public sector thinking carefully about how things are explained one of the the great things about most policies on climate is they've got lots of co-benefits as well as reducing emissions so if if you know if you if you focus on the expression of improving air quality so that people less people have, have asthma it's a nicer place where you feel you can walk and cycle because you can breathe rather than wanting to be in your car people are going to vote for that even if they don't care about whether it makes any difference to climate change people want to pay lower energy bills um so let's let's have some regulation that design build the buildings so that they need to consume less energy to keep people warm and cool people will vote for that even if they don't care that it also reduces carbon emissions a lot in the process. So I think it's possible to do. I don't think it's a barrier. And it kind of occurs to me that a lot of the cities people most tend to love and enjoy being in, whether it's uh, like Copenhagen or Portland in America uh, or Paris, it seems like it goes hand in hand. Some of the policies that lead to people to like the cities also lead to lower emissions. Yeah, and that, that is exactly the great thing, that the, the cities that are constantly winning the awards for livability also tend, tend to be the lower carbon ones. The, I guess, I mean, it's, it's a focus on the problem rather than the solution. The, the sort of overall consumerist culture is, is a barrier. So we, we, I, I suspect the, the period of the last 20 or 30 years in the West will be an anomaly in, in human history where we've rejoiced in our ability to consume 
at a whim and throw away without thinking of the consequences, which is entirely different to the rest of humanity's development. And we're about to have to go back into a phase where we get back again to thinking carefully how we make the most of every piece of, res of resource and, and reuse and have an understanding about the renewal of the resources that we rely on. Because we've, we've kind of belatedly understood that actually the Earth's resources are finite in the context of, of our human needs if we're going to be a population at least of, of six or seven billion or even nine billion. Well, Tendoff, I'd be curious what you're most excited by uh, and what sort of potential you see in cities, uh, the next sort of steps and next sort of uh, projects that, that cities could potentially take on in, in the transformation to becoming carbon neutral. Well, the thing that's most excited me this week is in the difference in the going between Le Bourget, where all the climate talks are having, and City Hall, where 700 mayors have been meeting this week. Uh, the contrast in the energy levels, but the, just this pure dynamism and innovation and recognition of the possibility of change in the room with the mayor's inability to, to work together fills me with quite a lot of optimism. I actually don't think there's going to be many new exciting things that cities are doing because I think we pretty much know uh, what needs to be done. I think there's just going to be a, a, another huge surge in the in the pace with which the, the best low carbon ideas are being adopted around the world. Well, let's certainly hope uh, that uh, both that more cities join the uh, the C40 and that uh, there's even more of an effort to make those transformations happen. Mark Watts, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Mark Watts, the executive director of the C40, a network of cities around the world working to become climate sustainable. And that's it for The Elephant this time. The Elephant is made by myself, Kevin Caners, with Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters. And it's created with the support of the Climate Kick, that's KIC, Alumni Association. It's a community of entrepreneurs and young professionals working on creating a climate-resilient society. You can find out more at ckaa.eu. Our website is elephantpodcast.org, where we have all of our episodes. And to keep up to date, you can like our page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Elephant Podcast. And feel free to drop me a message. You can reach me at Kevin at elephantpodcast.org. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you soon. <laughs>